This is Roger Hallam. You're listening to Designing the Revolution, Talk 11, Part 2, Action Theory. Okay, so we're going to be looking into the theory of doing direct action in some more detail. So let's just get into it. Um, There's a guy called Gene Sharp you may have heard of, and there's a sort of traditional theory of nonviolence, and it's quite materialistic and mechanical and behavioralistic, if you know what I mean. And it's got a lot going for it, but just to summarize, it tends to have two opposing forces. There's the people trying to create change, and there's their opponents. And there's a tipping point. And the tipping point is when the power of the uh, demonstrators or the civil resistance movement uh, goes higher than the power of the uh, government or the opponent. So that's pretty obvious, I guess. But that's the real, the sort of theory of it. But it doesn't particularly tell you what's going on in terms of the deeper psychology. But I'm mentioning that because that's the baseline. And you've probably heard you know, various discussions, not least from me, of saying, you know, if a certain number of people go to prison or 3,000 arrests or whatever it is, then there's this tipping point and you enter into negotiations. So I think the general theory behind that is, as we've discussed before, it's like people are computers, they, they make concrete decisions, um, et cetera, et cetera. But what I want to investigate with you over the next 15, 20 minutes is, is using of new theory of human nature about sociability and what have you, uh, and attention to try and come up with a more, um, a more accurate analysis of what goes on through the process of nonviolent disruption. So we can start off with two rules of thumb heuristics, as you might say. So the first one is people are herd animals without sounding too disrespectful. What I mean by that is what we do, as we've already discussed, is we tend to do what other people are doing, not least because we haven't got enough time to work out all the ins and outs of it. So if lots of people are going to restaurant A, we'll go to restaurant A. You know, if lots of people support football team B, you're going to support it. Um, because other people are. And in the extreme, you're going to do terrible things to other people, you know, like in a Nazi period, because other people are doing it. So it's not like the, the only game in town, but it's an important explanation. <clears throat> and then we've got this idea of society being a social space. And you, instead of people just doing what other people are doing, they do have intrinsic needs and orientations. And this is the heart of the sociability idea, okay? So <clears throat> we discussed in the theory section a session or two ago about this idea of love, not a sentimental romantic notion, but the need for connection and the need to give and receive love and the need for people to feel recognized and have a sense of collective purpose. And this is a definition of individual and, and social health. Now, 
when that breaks down, then it's quite often leads to conflict. So one example here, three sort of simple example is you've got a young child, you love the child, the child's about to put their hand in the fire, you get hold of the child, you pull it out of the fire, the, the, the kid out of the fire, and and they hate you for it for at least five minutes, maybe longer, because they wanted to put their hand in the fire. And you might call this tough love. It's like, I know what's good for you. Uh, I love you. So we can expand that sort of orientation towards the dynamics in in a family, that <clears throat> the problems in the family, everyone loves each other, everyone wants to get on, but there's problems. And the first strategy is, let's hope the problem goes away. And then at a certain point, it dawns on one or two members of the family that they're going to have to have a row. <laughs> and they raise the issue, <clears throat> and they have a row about it, which is, you know, pretty unpleasant. And not always, but often, as a result of that row, there's a process of dialogue comes out of it and some resolution, reconciliation, people change their behavior. Um, so that's very different than, you know, computers working out what their interests are, if you see what I mean. So I should say at this point, I've gone into this subject in a little bit more detail in a uh, in a YouTube video, I think it's called uh, Why Disrupt the Public. So if you're interested in this, you can watch that and it goes into a bit more detail. But I, I'm going to continue on, on this line of thought. So the proposition I'd like to make is that in a, some sense, a society made up, you know, the English people, the British people, whatever, constitute a family in the sense that it's a unit in and of itself and the internal dynamics of that of that society are based around mutual recognition, uh, uh, the dynamics of wanting attention, love, having a common identity. In other words, it's a moral community. It's not just people going out, going, what's my benefits, what's my costs. It's a lot more emotional and even spiritual than that. So... When you engage in civil disobedience, what you can see is uh, what you can see happening is what happens in a the family. There's a denial element, and then people come round to your viewpoint, assuming it's a reasonable and ethical and objectively moral viewpoint, as we discussed in the last session. So you can see this. First of all, let's just look at this process. If you can, if let's say lots of people go and block motorways, there's a normal distribution of responses to that. So let's say for the sake of argument, at the center of the bell curve, I, most people are going, you know, that's really bad, but they don't necessarily hate you, but they just think it's really bad and stupid and you're a bit of a twat. And then at one end, there's people that really hate you and they want you to go to prison or they want to go and beat you up or something. And then at the other end, the other long tail, there's people who are going, actually, these guys are right, you know, the climate crisis is terrible, and someone needs to wake society up. So during the process of um, social change, attitude, mass attitude change, 
you have to bear in mind that people move along according to where they are initially. So the normal distribution curve is going to move. So people are going to go through some transition and the transition is broadly as follows. You know, first of all, they hate you. They want you to go away. Secondly, they hate you. They've got some grudging respect. You know, those guys, they're still out there blocking the motorways, but basically they're twats. <laughs> you know, it's like, get rid of them. You know, I, I, I've, you know, I sort of respect where they're up to, but it's just, no, it's a, it's a big no-no. These people need to be put in prison. Then the third stage is, look, you're right. You know, there's a big problem with the climate, um, but sitting in the right way is not the way to do it. You know, it's your cause is right, but you're just you're just making people, you know, angry. You're doing the cause no good. You know, you're very familiar with that orientation. And then the fourth stage, you know, which is two years later, <laughs> when they start building statues of you and what have you, it's like those guys were right, and they were right to use the method of non-violent civil disobedience. So you can see this, the, these stages. So if you're what you might call a professional civil disobedience designer, which is what hopefully we all are on, this, on listening to this podcast to do, is you need to know you're going through those phases. Because if you don't, you're going to hit this idea that, oh, everyone's against us, we need to stop. And you can see this as a massive sort of unscholarly, not very intelligent reaction of lots of people in Extinction Rebellion in 2019. We're turning the public against us. We need to stop. So an example of where that didn't happen was in 1961 with the Freedom Riders. So let's look at that example because it's quite an important example. So the history of the civil rights movement in America, you know, to be a bit blunt about it, it's been somewhat made a nice clinical sanitized sort of history the fact of the matter is is there was a big uh, civil resistance episode civil disobedience episode 1958 with montgomery buskell boycott by the time we got to 1961 there were loads of questions about whether civil disobedience actually worked because what it seemed to be doing was simply over polarizing american society you know, the vast majority of Americans didn't agree with civil disobedience, including a lot of black people. And the Ku Klux Klan had doubled in numbers. And it just looked like it was a really stupid thing to do. On top of that, you had all the white moderates going, you know, we need to work with the system. We don't need to cause a fuss, blah, blah, blah. So this is, this is a pattern, as I say, that's been replicated over and over and over again in social change processes. So what the uh, Freedom Riders did, of course, is they said, no, 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 right? You know, we are going to keep pushing. We're going to keep pushing because, number one, it's the right thing to do. And number two, because we know the theory of civil disobedience, that you push and you push and push, and then you break through. So this is very similar to, you know, a thousand and one scandals in human history. So I don't know if you've seen the film uh, Spotlight, but this is about uh, child abuse by Catholic priests in Boston. And if you watch that film, you can see the same dynamics. And these dynamics are sort of replicated. You see them in lots of films. It's like one or two guys get an idea, something bad's happening. 
then they push. There's a great big pushback. Everyone starts guilt tripping them and saying, you know, you're rocking the boat. You're creating polarization. You just, you know, it's not as bad as you say it is. And then there's this tipping point, And there's a famous scene in 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 um, in this film where they're sitting in the office and they think there's six six uh, priests in in Boston who are abusing kids, and then they find out that it's 300 <laughs> and it's like, oh my God, you know, it's massive. And that's like leads to this bigger, bigger explosive process that basically brings down the whole, the whole ship of, of the scandal. So another example of this is if you're a professional psychotherapist or analyst or whatever, uh, and to simplify somewhat, You've got your client or patient, and initially they're going to be going, there's nothing wrong with me, my relationships are fine, I don't know why I'm in, you know, in, in here. So it's this repression phase. And then, you know, suddenly they get really angry and they say, I don't want to be here, you know, you know, it's really, they're just shouting at the psychotherapist. So if the psychotherapist doesn't know the theory of, you know, psychological change, then they might think, oh, my God, I've upset this person. You know, I'm going to stop the session. I'm going to apologize. And then, you know, I'm just going to let them have their way. But, of course, that's not what psychotherapist is thinking. Psychotherapist is thinking, great. <laughs> you know, broadly speaking, they're thinking, great. This guy is starting to emote, starting to actually come out you know, get beyond his repression. And, you know, often, not always, obviously, but more often than not, this is the beginning of the psychotherapeutic psych um, process of them coming to reintegrate their personality and such like and becoming uh, well adapted to themselves in their environment. All right, so what I'm trying to say here is there's a whole bunch of, of ways of looking about social dynamics which which support this theory that people get angry before they change. And it's essential that we understand that this is the process uh, and the science, really, of, of social change through civil disobedience. In other words, people broadly have to have a virtue ethics orientation. This is good. It's good to do good stuff, to disrupt people because terrible things are happening. It's also a sort of it's got a theory of change, it's got an ideology, which is through the process of disruption, through people getting upset, then they change, it might take a while. As opposed to this default uh, behavioristic orientation of, oh, you know, look, the empirics say people hate us, so then we're going to stop. No, 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 that's not how it works. All right, so let's move on from this a little bit to a rather interesting phenomenon. And I'm sure, okay, many people listening to this will be sort of aware of this, which is traditionally activism being embedded in this old frame of the political has had this logic that what you have to do to create change is to do bad things, as it were, to bad people. You go and disrupt an oil refinery, you go outside the government buildings, um, etc. And what you find is 
lot of things being equal, the media's not interested and the public's not interested. So that's just an empirical fact, as it were, right? It's an observation. The other observation, empirical fact, is when you engage in activities that disrupt the public, block a motorway, um, um, block roads, and such like, then other things being equal, you get this massive amount of publicity and, of course, a massive amount of, of bad publicity and people hating you, but we've already discussed that. So why is that the case? So there's a big denial around this, <laughs> which is part of this transition from the old political paradigm to the sociability paradigm. So the old political paradigm is, is people have self-interests, they're interested in politics, they're interested in the rights and wrongs of you know, top-level policy and stuff. They're not, right? It's like 3 or 4% of people, 3 or 4% of the time. What most people are interested in is general moral, um, moral stories and confrontations. If they, as a group, are involved in that moral uh, drama and confrontation, then they will react because they're part of it. If they're not part of it, why should they be bothered? Because they've got 101 decisions to make every day. And let's face it, politics is boring, it's distant, it's alienating, people lie to you all the time. So when you see a bunch of activists go and outside shell and throw paint on it or such like, it's, it's like it's something some people are doing to other people. It's not to do with me. So that's why that sort of action as a general rule doesn't work in terms of creating mass attitude change. What all the classical civil disobedience campaigns do is they create this big drama. It's on the front page of the papers. Everyone's talking about it and 90% of people don't like you to varying extents. But this is the um, this is the way to get attention to start this process of, of transformation. So you can see how the theory of sociability, the theory of emotional connection between people is a far better exploratory theory than this notion that people are involved want to think about high level politics or want to make cost benefit analyses and what have you. So the last way I want to look at this phenomenon is through the idea that what civil disobedience does is gets the nation, the society, to talk to the nation, to society. In other words, it's actually, far from being anti-democratic, it's deeply democratic because it creates the heart of what democracy should be, which is public discourse on matters of public morality. And I like to think of it as sort of swapping around the way that we're taught to look upon the social world. We're taught to think that everything that's important is what other people do. It's the elites, it's the politicians, it's the, it's the people at the top, it's the national media stations. And what we are is some extra adult. <laughs> people are invisible, ordinary people are invisible in that scheme. And what we're presenting here is another scheme, another way of looking upon things, which is actually what's at the center of the system is us, ordinary people, 
in conflict with each other, engaging in constructive confrontation to reconstitute what it is to be a good society. In other words, the elites and the national media and um, the politicians are on the periphery of that. What's really going on is 10 million conversations down the pub about what the fuck's going on with the climate. And that's good in itself, regardless of whether people are moving towards you or not. But we have good evidence they will, of course. But you can see how this is a very different metaphysical foundational way of looking at social reality. And you can see once we start to think in this way, everything starts to be a lot more coherent. You're not just talking about why you're upsetting people. You have to go deeper than that. If you're going to persuade people that upsetting people is a good idea, you have to be, be able to communicate a whole different way of thinking about how society actually is. It's actually its actual constitution. What is actually going on? And move out of this narrative that's being provided by the elites, which is intrinsically disempowering, to this new narrative where we, the people, are the central system. So it's sort of cool. <laughs> I think so. Uh, hopefully you do too. So let's move on to negotiation. So I had a friend, a co-founder of XR, and I think he made this up, or maybe I made it up, I can't remember, but we both used to be our little private joke that civil disobedience is maximum disruption, maximum love. Okay, so everyone sort of knows the maximum disruption idea, right? You're going out, you're causing lots of trouble. And the maximum love idea gets a little bit sidelined. But what I want to communicate here is these two sides of the coin of civil disobedience are as important as each other. Because <clears throat> what you want to do, as the saying goes, is win the peace rather than just win the war. In other words, as and even when you're approaching the point at which an opponent is going to come and talk to you, a major deciding factor is whether they feel like they're going to be able to save faith or not. This is just human nature. They need to feel like, regardless of their position, they're being respected. <coughs> Now, obviously, there's a moral reason for doing this, which is, you know, we're all, we're all the same type of people at the end of the day, and it's good to be respectful. There's also an uh, instrumental reason, which is that this enables us to actually get into the room and negotiate. So one of the interesting things about the negotiation situation is We've all been taught, and you can read books on this, that negotiation is about power. It's about you go in the room, you know, you, you look like some top ape or something, and, you know, you sound really confident, and you do all these funny tactics, and you go hard, and then don't, and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, there was a meta-review of the literature by Harvard people a few years ago, and they discovered that the key, the key, um, the key determinant of success in negotiation is whether the other side personally likes you or not. Okay, so just yep, yeah, hear that again. <laughs> what makes you successful in negotiation is if the other side personally like you. 
In other words, it's not about objective economic interest. It's about sociability. It's about, are they connected with you? Do they think you're a cool guy? Do you think, you know, they're okay? We're okay? And this is because of this power of human connection. So I'll give you one or two examples here. I mean, there's loads of examples of this. But a personal example was when I did my King's College, you know, for a paint on the wall, hunger strike thing. I was I had four or five meetings with the um, with the vice prince, vice principal of King's College. So he's an important guy, right? There's thirty thousand students in this university. He's got a lot of more, more important things to do, but he didn't when I was on hunger, hunger strike. So we had these meetings. So I was going to do my Gandhi routine. You know, I was thinking, yeah, you know, this guy's okay. I'm going to be respectful towards him. I'm going to be straight. I'm going to be honest. You know, I'm going to deal straight hand, as it were. I'm, going to, I'm not going to mess him about. I'm on hunger strike. When they agree to divest, I'll stop. That's the deal. And I'm not going to guilt trip him or, you know, make sarcastic comments. So I did this. And, you know, surprise, surprise, within about half an hour, we're getting on like a house on fire. <laughs> it's like, he likes me. I like him. And, um, and you know, saying nice things about me and, you know, goes off to the investment committee and gets things organized and he's great and it's a bit like we're a team and you might think i'm exaggerating it but i did and it's not like this guy was some sort of saint or anything he worked for a fossil fuel company for most of his life so he was hardly um you know <coughs> a good guy in that sense what i'm suggesting to you is it wasn't about him or about me it was about the atmosphere the sociability between the two of us and this is something you see throughout history. So the famous, um, the famous example at the end of the uh, Irish War of Independence, uh, I think it's around 1921, the Irish nationalists got together with British government people. And surprise, surprise, you know, they had lots of cultural things in common and they started getting on and they came up with a great compromise because <clears throat> of the sociability dynamics as I would describe it. And then, of course, they took it back to their respective, uh, you know, warring parties, as it were, and all hell broke loose because they made an agreement. And if you know the history, you know, there was a civil war in Ireland uh, over the, the peace agreement. So I'm not making any judgments on whether the peace agreement was good or bad. What I'm trying to say is that um, these dynamics are, are prevalent and they're invisible to this whole paradigm. But using the sociability paradigm, you can see it all makes sense. So the last thing I'll say on this is that um, I introduced this notion of eight out of ten. So if you remember me talking about this, I think I've talked about this before. And this is very, this is very much a rule of thumb. But conventional campaigning is, for the sake of argument, between two and three out of ten. Most civil disobedience. Uh, is about five, six out of ten. Where you want to be in order to maximize your effectiveness as a civil disobedience designer is eight out of ten. And if you start going to nine or ten out of ten, then you rapidly become ineffectual. So what I mean by that is, um, going back to the King's College example, you know, we could have just put a few drops of paint on the central hall. He'd put 7,000 pounds worth of damage of paint on 
I didn't go on hunger strike for two days. We went on hunger strike for 10, for um, 14 days. Um, but at the same time, we didn't go in with, you know, big hammers and start knocking the heads off, off um, statues. <laughs> we didn't blow anything up. We didn't start swearing at everybody. Uh, we didn't start threatening. In other words, you can overdo it. And this is because it's quite a sophisticated analysis on this process of polarization. Everyone knows, you know, it's 101 civil disobedience that you have to create polarization. <clears throat> well, polarization is a continuum, right? It's a little bit of polarization, quite a lot, and then there's total polarization. And when you overdo it, in other words, when you go 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10, then that creates a solidity of overpolarization. And the great example, of course, in this is violence, particularly the action of killing people. Killing people has a certain objectivity and absoluteness about it. You know, just about everyone in every society thinks killing people is a bad idea, murder is a bad idea. Why is that? Because that person never comes back. So it's traumatizing. And what that trauma does is it creates a solidification, a solidity of polarization. In other words, they don't care about you anymore. They're coming to get you because you killed them and they're going to come and kill you. And you don't get the reconciliation, the dialogue, the negotiation element. Or if you do, it's a zero-sum game. You know, It's like total war and all that stuff. So what happens is when you get to 9 or 10 out of 10, you slide into this over-polarization system. So one way of looking upon this, and you know, ideally I should be doing a video here, but I'm going to try and describe it to you. If you look at all the people in society, there's going to be a power law curve. In other words, there's going to be a few people that really agree with you, and then there's loads and loads of people that, you know, they're a little bit into you, a little bit not. And then there's people at the end who don't like you at all. Um, now, if you do your 8 out of 10, they're not going to like you, the middle section, not going to like you. But then they're going to be drawn towards you because of your respectfulness, you know, your Gandhian tactics as well, and, and philosophy. So they polarize away from you, and then they, they come back. Most people then are going to move towards your position in the medium stage, uh, in the medium term. Uh, and the people at the end, there's always going to be, let's say, 20% of people that aren't because they're just un, unchangeable, as you might say. But analytically, that doesn't matter because the majority of the population is moving, has moved towards your position, or at least publicly, uh, publicly support you. They might think other things privately. So just to emphasize then, this is a common misunderstanding, is this process of nonviolent confrontation has these two move effect, which is initially people move away from you and polarised because they're alienated by the challenge, the moral challenge that you present. Uh, but because of, as we just mentioned, uh, Gandhian sort of respect orientation, and because you're objectively right, as it were, in moral terms, then in the medium term, they flip, flip back, and they leave this residual sort of group. Now, it's worth juxtaposing that, I suppose, to 
the violent strategy, as it were, or at least uh, the aggressive strategy, where um, it's not possible for the opponent to save face. But more significantly, and this is the central problem with the uh, aggressive, violent approach, is that you lose that middle ground. And that middle ground gets polarised away from you and then gets even more polarised away from you. And you find that you only have a support of a small section of the population, even in the medium term. Um, so this is what you might call over-polarisation, right? You actually get a split in the social field um, and say 70% of the population is just unreconcilably opposed to you because you're using violence and people are being killed and, you know, and on a, in a lesser extent, you're just being aggressive towards people and not using a respect orientation. And we're going to talk about this more like in future um, podcasts, but just to mention the the um, the research done by Eric Chenoweth, uh, why civil resistance works, which is a key text, as you probably know. Uh, the stats there is that if uprisings that involve violence, only 25% of them work, but more significantly, only one in 20 of them hasn't degraded into civil war, social collapse, or authoritarianism after five years. So you've only got a 5% chance of success in inverted commons using a violent strategy. And the reason for this, of course, you know, there's lots of reasons for it, but one of the main reasons is because you basically get this over-polarisation society and the willingness of people to engage in violence towards each other and, uh, in a more general sense, to simply not engage with each other, which obviously is a bit of a disaster. Um, yeah, so that's that's the general orientation. Okay, so before I finish this podcast, what I want to do is just zoom out a little bit. We just spent two sessions looking in some detail at, at the theory, action theory. Um, and in the next session, we're going to go on to actual concrete designs. But let's just take five minutes to think where we're up to. At least it's helpful for me. <laughs> so we're trying to develop here a big strategy, aren't we? Uh, and we're looking at um, building up a movement, how you mobilize people, how you recruit them, how people are brought into nonviolent confrontation with the opponent. And then we're going to be moving into this revolutionary phase. And if you remember, there's three possibilities here. The first possibility is the Martin Luther King scenario, which is you go through a series of wins over five or six years. So you win one campaign, you get credibility, you run up to another campaign. You can see this at the moment. You know, I'm, say, I'm doing this recording in where are we? February 2023. Uh, last generation in Germany are replicating this model. The thing's taken off. They're blocking lots of motorways. They're in the national conversation. They've got an easy win to put a, put a speed limit on uh, cars on the motorway. It's quite possible they're going to win. Once they've won, then they're going to re-establish themselves, start a new campaign, something with a bigger ask, and off they go again. So that's the first scenario. The second scenario is there's a massive crisis developing society. Or maybe there's some big, some big ecological situation 
and you proactively, you've got a little COBRA committee, as it were, and you proactively used your movement, which has been doing, you know, scenario one, then you move it rapidly into a big popular demonstration leading to civil resistance activities. And then the third scenario, and all these things are, you know, they're all part of a continuum, obviously. The third scenario is, again, there's some massive ecological crisis or political or economic crisis, and some group of people, you don't know who they are because they're not in your network, suddenly come out of nowhere and there's a big demonstration and no one's organizing it and you have to get in there and, and try and sort it out. So all those three scenarios, it doesn't matter which one is going to happen and it's a bit difficult to predict, but all of them require this process that we've been talking about for the last few sessions, okay? The mobilization process, the action process, building up hundreds of people who understand the theory, understand the philosophy, and understand the practice so that you can quickly move into a revolutionary episode scenario and maximize the probability as a pro-social outcome. Okay, so there's a few other variables really looking at the strategic situation. One of them is this notion that movements move in waves, you know, Extinction Rebellion gets really big and then it falls back and then it comes back and there's this wave idea. And there's a challenge to that, which is this wave thing isn't really going to work because um, it assumes that the opponent, the, the crisis you face is linear. You know, it's like slavery, it's like racism, it's terrible, it's obscene, but it's not going to go exponential. It's going to be as terrible as it was 10 years ago in 20 years' time. So there's all good reasons to continue working on it, but this leads to this sort of wave. With the climate crisis, it's an exponential, you know, exponential uh, curve towards total fuckness, right? What that means is that this wave theory isn't going to be a wave. What's going to happen is it's going to carry on growing because as soon as you start losing momentum, something terrible, even more terrible is going to happen and more and more people are going to mobilize. So we've got to bear that in mind. And as we know, this revolutionary episode is not, you know, it could be in six months' time, it could be five years' time, but it's coming down the road for certain, for the reasons we've discussed. The other thing to bear in mind, and I think we've touched on this, is civil resistance episodes usually only last six months because otherwise they get bureaucratic and inert. So your action, your action design has to take big risks. There's no point going into this revolutionary episode going, you know, one step at a time, sweet Jesus. <laughs> it's not going to work. You've got to be going, right, we're going to go to London, you know, we're going to go to Paris, whatever it is, and we're going to do an eight out of ten design. We're not going to do five. We're not going to do ten either, but we're going to do eight. So, you know, maybe it's not going to work, but if we don't pull this off within six months, then the whole inertia of the system, assuming there's not another ecological 9-11 scenario, it's going to, you know, go back to semi-normal again, and then you've lost a year or two until something dramatic happens. Okay, another thing to think about is, generally speaking, what I've done over the last two sessions is to talk about in, intensive causality. What I mean by that is, is you're looking at the space and time you're in. You know, you go to the go to London, you block the roads for two weeks, the government changes legislation. That's the main show and it's really important. And at the same time, 
it's important to understand there's an extensive causality, right? i.e. you influence people over wider space and time. And this doesn't necessarily immediately lead, and often doesn't immediately lead to some concrete win, but it's like scattering the seeds of potential future wins. So for instance, as you probably know, some people just uh, oil through uh, soup over a Van Gogh, like 70 million people watched it. No, that's not going to lead to the British government uh, saying, oh yes, we thought about it, we're not going to have new oil and gas. What it does lead to, though, is someone in you know Sydney going, oh my God, that's great, I'm going to set up a campaign, I'm going to contact Just Stop Oil, and six months later, they can have you know a big civil disobedience operation because of that Van Gogh uh, episode. So you can't predict this in terms of specifics, obviously, but this is what extensive causality is all about. And obviously you've got to focus on the intensive stuff because we've got to start winning, but it's important to bear that logic in mind. The other thing that we're going to be coming on to talk about is the interaction between the action mobilization system and other elements that are crucial to a revolutionary transformation. So I'm not going to talk about these much now, but just you know, make a little mental note. It's not just a glorified civil disobedience campaign, what we're heading into. We're heading into a transformation of societies on a political, social, spiritual, cultural level. It's the whole damn thing. Okay, so the little mental note is we are going to be coming on to talk about parallel institutions, citizens' assemblies, people's assemblies, like alternative democracy. We're going to be coming on to talking about the cultural transformation, like cultural uh, producers, like people who like comedy shows, people that are sports stars, all this sort of thing, coming on board and influencing the zeitgeist. And we're coming on to talk about standing in elections, you know, as a direct action or as a, you know, ordinary people standing in elections and such like. So we don't need to worry ourselves too much about all the ins and outs of that at this moment, but that's the territory we're entering into. <clears throat> and last but not least, this is a global village, as I've just said. What we do, you know, here in the UK where I am, is going to influence people in France, going to influence people in Perth, in Australia, it's going to influence people, you know, in Zambia. The whole thing is all interconnected, as we saw with Extinction Rebellion. Uh, you know, within five or six months of that April rebellion, there was 70, groups, 70 countries that set up groups. Um, so we need to bear that in mind that the demonstration effect, as it's called, is very, very real, not least because, obviously, of global media and uh, social media. Okay, so that's broadly yeah, the broad environment. So just in conclusion, then, let me make these you know, three key points. First of all, what we are hopefully gradually developing here is not just a whole bunch of routines, it's a philosophy, it's a theory, an ideology that goes behind them all and is functional in so much as it creates good predictions of success. And that's this whole sociability proximity paradigm. Secondly, when we engage in action, then that's what creates social agency and fluidity. In other words, it's not enough, it's radically not enough to have your friends of the Earth group 
and sit around, you know, with some bright ideas and go and lobby, do conventional campaigning. At this stage of the game, the disruption is necessary to animate the movement and to create the social change that creates that animation. And the last thing is we have to have a central control structure to optimize design. In other words, the designs that I'm going to come on to in the next session presuppose that there's a central group that has effective control over the design process, the enactment of it. In other words, it's not like just some group that's going to be going, hey, we've got an idea, and six months later, you know, it's half enacted. It's more like, no, it's a sort of semi-Leninist operation, right, without sounding too dramatic. It's like, these are the social conditions. This is our optimal uh, strategy, and we are now going to put it into action. If you don't want to join it, that's fine, but this is what we're doing. And this is the big transformatory uh, organizational paradigm we're going to be talking about in two or three sessions. So with your group, with this theory, now we can go on in the next podcast and start designing where we're going to sit down and why and where and when and all the rest of it. Okay, cool. I'll speak to you again soon. Bye.